26 and a half minutes to 10 o'clock on this Friday morning, the 21st of April. My name is Amy McIver, standing in for Clarence Ford here on Views and News. And it's a great pleasure to be in your company. Thanks for choosing to listen to Cape Talk this morning, however you are spending your morning. One of my favorite things about standing in on a Friday morning is that I get to talk to the incredible Dr. Chris Smith. And I'm delighted to be joined by Skype by the doctor now on the line. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Oh, hi, Amy. I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm good, thank you. All the better for hearing your voice. And as always, as soon as we say Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist, the lines start lighting up. So I think we're Hopefully not with complaints. <laughs> not at all. Chris, let's go straight to the line and we've got a call from Shireen in Pinelands. Good morning, Shireen. Um, good morning, Amy. Um, good morning, Doc. My question is what causes the brain to age faster than the body? And does that start at birth or can it start later on in life? And what happens at the end? I mean, like, do you die of old age or just your brain just shuts down? Hi, Shireen. The brain contains about 100 billion nerve cells and about 10 times as many as that other kinds of, of supporting cells. But the critical thing about the nerve cells is that what you're born with is what has to last you a lifetime. You don't make, except in a few rare places in the brain, new brain cells. And this is why the brain is very vulnerable to the ageing process, because if you lose brain cells, with a few rare exceptions in a few places, you don't replace them. And this means that the cells are vulnerable to the sorts of insults that having bad health in general can throw at the brain. And there's an old saying, which is what's good for the body is good for the brain and good for the mind, because if you adopt a healthy lifestyle, you give your brain the best chance of lasting as long as possible. Because all of the things we do when we drink alcohol, when we smoke, generally when we have fun, uh, when you get a sleepless night because the children have kept you up, whatever, this is stressful, biochemically stressful for your nervous system. And you do, unfortunately, lose nerve cells. You're losing nerve cells all the time. But thankfully, because we're born with a huge oversupply, most people do make them last a lifetime. But what we are seeing is that as you get an, a population that ages, and what we mean by that is that the average age at which a person dies in many countries these days is going up. And it's going up to the point where previously people wouldn't have lived long enough to get a problem with their brain. But now people are living long enough to get dementias and other uh, sorts of degenerative conditions of the nervous system that rob people of their faculties. And when you get to the end of your life, if, if your person, say, has a heart attack, then you deprive the brain of its blood supply and instantly shuts off. So a person instantly becomes unconscious and they're, they're then unaware of what's going on. If they have a stroke, you effectively do the same thing. But with a degenerative condition, it's, a, it's a, an erosion of a person's ability to think for themselves, look after themselves, and basically have a high quality of life. And it doesn't shut off immediately. And this often comes with very high care and dependency costs, which is why governments and policymakers all around the world are very worried about the brain ageing problem. So you ask a very pertinent question. Thanks, Shireen, for that question. Let's go to Christine in Tableview. Good morning, Christine. What's your question for the doc? Hello. I'd like to know why ice skaters don't get giddy when they're performing in these competitions. Thank you. <laughs> so would I. That's an interesting question. <laughs> um, it, there's a certain element of trickery going on. And if you look at dancers and ballerinas, they also do the trick I'm going to tell you, which is that rather than whirling round in a 
spiral with your head fixed relative to your body so your head turns at the same rate as your body what they will do and what they're taught to do is to fixate on one point with their visual system turn their body underneath their head so your head stays fixed and your eyes stay fixed and your body moves to the greatest extent you can and then you whip your head round from that point of fixation round the back and round to the front to the same point or a new point of fixation again and although you're still moving you're making a series of staccato movements move 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 rather than a continuous movement and it's the continuous movement that causes the greatest sensation of giddiness and the reason for this is that your balance organs your vestibular system in your inner ear actually contains fluid and projecting into that fluid are sprays of hairs on the ends of nerves and the hairs get bent or pushed by the movement of the fluid and that's how you detect movement if you keep spinning it's a bit like if you put your hand into your wash basin full of water and you move your hand in a continuous circle around the wash basin eventually the water is all moving in sync with your hand and this is when we get a sense of giddiness if you make a series of staccato movements the water will still move but it won't establish a continuous turning circle or at least not as quickly and so the time to become giddy is lengthened so that's how they can get away with it so that's one of the tricks and keeping your eyes fixated on a distant object can also help balance as well that's what i try and do in yoga so that i don't fall over and embarrass myself (laughs) thank you dr chris smith and i hope that answered your question christine let's go to the whatsapp line now and take a listen to a voice note good morning amy and dr chris i've got a question about being ticklish Is there a physiological reason why we are ticklish? And if so, why is it only certain parts of the body are ticklish? And why is it that some people aren't ticklish at all? Is it detrimental in any way for them? Mm. That is a brilliant Mm. question. I love that one. It tickles my fancy. The answer is, the reason, first of all, we think we have tickly spots is if you look where the tickly spots are, they are areas of the body where we are highly vulnerable. So if you are thinking about being in a fight or being assaulted by somebody, they're the areas that you need to watch out for where you're vulnerable to being stuck, prodded, caught, and and therefore you need to watch out to defend those areas. So why does being tickly help? The argument goes that if you look at young humans, if you look at young animals, they play fight. And they often play fight playing with those giddy spots, uh, tickly spots. And the argument is that if you make it part of the fun, learning where your vulnerabilities are by play, you learn without realising it how to defend and therefore avoid being assaulted on your tickly spots and therefore your vulnerable spots, but you do it in a fun way from a young age to become good at it. So some arguments, some schools of thought argue that we are tickly partly as a way of finding out where we're more vulnerable to being hurt and therefore working out how to avoid that particular angle of attack from from a potential assailant the other aspect to tickliness is that we use skin tickle as a way to detect when something's on the skin that shouldn't be there and it alerts you to a patch of your body and what's the remedy for an itch you scratch because the nerve cells that signal pain from scratching turn off or inhibit the nerve signals that are related to itch because there is a population of nerve cells in the skin that specifically signal itch sensation and when they're activated they signal to the spinal cord i feel itchy and the nerves that relate also to that patch of skin that localize the itchiness signal tell the spinal cord you're itchy in this particular place and then the nerves that feel pain can turn off 
both of those sensations. So it's a way of alerting you to something being wrong with a certain part of your body's surface, such as being bitten by a mosquito, for instance, and you pay attention to it and you scratch it. So it's a defence against things trying to um, bite through you, par parasites trying to invade your body and so on. So there are two different possible roles to itch, and that's possibly why there are two different types of itch and tickle. One being an itchy sensation when you stroke the skin very gently and it just, it just feels quite nice, versus that deep-rooted when someone, for instance, puts their hands just above your hips and, and tweaks you from each side or fingers either side of the knees and tweaks you there. That, that very visceral um, itch and tickle sensation is, is called gargalysis, and that's a different kind of sensation. But they, they probably have, therefore, those dual roles, we think. That's fascinating, and thank you, Zuki, for that question. Ian in Bloberg has been very patiently waiting on the line to talk to you, Doc. Good morning, Ian. Good morning. Um, I just recently discovered very surprisingly that we have two sets of DNA. I don't know if that's entirely correct, but I'm referring to mitochondrial DNA as opposed to our nucleus DNA that we would assume to have. Um, I wonder if you can elaborate on the empty DNA and I believe, I don't know if you could correct me, is it bacterial? Um, I'm not a, a biologist or anything. I'm just a lay person. I've discovered this, so I'm very interested in it. Hello, Ian. You're quite right that if we were to take a, a cell other than a red blood cell, which don't have nucleus uh, material in them, if we take, say, a white blood cell or a skin cell that's not dead and we look inside it, you can find two structures that matter. One is the nucleus. This is a pretty big structure and in there is your genomic DNA. And if you pulled it all out, it would be about 10 metres long of, of DNA in that one tiny cell. And that's broken up into a bunch of chromosomes in the average person. There are 23 pairs of chromosomes, one that you get from mum, one that you get from dad. And they are all of the genetic instructions and the recipe book to make you you and they were formed those pairs of chromosomes when one sperm from dad met one egg from mum and the genetic copies of the chromosomes merged together and in the egg and they made a an embryo which became you but alongside that nucleus in that egg cell that was fertilized by that sperm are another population of structures called mitochondria these are much smaller than the nucleus itself they're about the same size as a bacterium and that really matters, that, because we think that originally, way back in evolutionary history, they were bacteria. And there is a uh, famous theory called the endosymbiont theory, which was put forward by a lady called Lynn Margulis quite a few decades ago now, which argued that way back in evolutionary time, as modern cells, so-called eukaryotic cells that we are made of, came along, they had a problem which was they needed a lot of energy to run, but they were very good at doing a lot of other things. Bacteria, on the other hand, needed a lot of the things that those other cells were very good at making, but they'd solve the energy problem. So the two got together in a collaboration, the endosymbiotic theory, symbiosis, yeah. where the bacterium joins with the mature cell and the bacterium is given a home and protection and food to eat and the cell is given access to the bacteria's biochemical know-how to make enormous amounts of energy on tap.
And we think that that uh, collaboration has continued for uh, millions of years ever since it happened. And that's why you've got, if you look inside the cell, these mitochondria that resemble bacteria, they're the same size as bacteria, and hey presto, if you look inside them, you find a small circle of DNA in there, just like a bacterial genome. And indeed, yes, it does share a lot of genes with the original bacteria that would have been there. And, and they've got their own DNA because it provides the chemical recipe for the biochemistry inside those structures in the cell that provide you with your energy. And so you inherit your genetic genomic DNA from mum and dad. You inherit your mitochondria and therefore your mitochondrial DNA from your mum exclusively because the mitochondria are in the egg that gets fertilized by the sperm and when the sperm fertilizes the egg it gives its dna but not mitochondria the egg is where you get your mitochondria from so you can trace your maternal lineage using the messages in the genetic information of the mitochondria and that is where mitochondrial dna genetics come in and, it, and we can use it to look at lineages and evolution over long periods of time the, that theorem with the bacteria, was that also not tied into the fact that the early atmosphere was anaerobic and as it became more and more aerobic, um, that's why they think these things, these two, the synergy between the two became, could have happened. I don't know. Well, mitochondria are responsible for oxidative metabolism. In other words, turning the products of some aspects of metabolism into huge amounts of energy in the presence of oxygen. And mitochondria only work properly when there's a good, healthy supply of oxygen. But certainly the earliest life on Earth, going back maybe four billion years, and for many billions of years, life on Earth was dominated by microorganisms and there was hardly any oxygen around. So those microbes were chiefly in some cases they were oxygen producing they were cyanobacteria but they were very good at operating in an atmosphere devoid of oxygen which is not quite right for modern day cells which uh, rely on mitochondria having a ready supply of oxygen so they can produce enough energy for us yeah uh, it's very fascinating I, I find it very interesting that we have these two sets of dna and the one is is not you know it, it originates from a bacteria which i thought was very very interesting Thanks, Ian. That is a very interesting question. Thank you for your call. Doc, the next question comes from Ali. She's on the line from Cape Town. The question is, um, if you take, let's say, 20 kilos or one kilo, doesn't matter, and you burn it, the weight of the S will be much, much less than the 20 kilos. My question is actually all the coal that's been taken out of the earth gets burnt up and it's S. All the oil gets burnt, taken out of the earth, and it turns into whatever was burnt up. The weight of that on the earth, what replaces the weight? Well, you're quite right. If you fill your car with fuel and weigh it, it weighs more than when the fuel tank was empty. Because, of course, the fuel weighs something. And when it burns in the engine, you're combining the molecules, which have got a lot of carbon in them, with molecules of oxygen drawn into the engine from the air. The two react together and you get carbon dioxide and you also get water. Where does it go? 
goes out the exhaust pipe. Now, you haven't destroyed or made any new matter when you burned that fuel. All you did was to move the atoms and molecules which were in your fuel tank into the atmosphere. And if we weigh individual atoms, we know how much individual atoms and molecules weigh. So therefore, we can't have, if we haven't made any material and we haven't destroyed any material, we can't have lost any material. Therefore, what goes in must be coming out, plus the weight of the oxygen that you've added to the mix. So therefore, you must have the same weight of molecules plus the oxygen now in the atmosphere. And that's exactly where they are. So when you hear people talk about how much carbon dioxide we've released over the last year into the atmosphere and people talk about 40 billion tonnes of CO2 emitted this year, that's what they're referring to. If you were to weigh each of the carbon and the oxygen atoms which are in a molecule of CO2 and a molecule of water as well that's come out of your exhaust pipe, it would all add up to the same weight of carbon and, and, and hydrogen and the oxygen the engine pulled in that you used when running your car engine it's just it's now in the atmosphere rather than bound up as a solid in the ground and that's the difference between a gas and a solid gases are spread out they're very low density the particles are far apart and moving very quickly it doesn't mean they don't weigh anything it just means that they're light enough to float around in the atmosphere if you were to compress them all together and form them back into a lump of coal the weight would be the mass more accurately, would be the same, but the density would be much higher. So instead of floating around in the atmosphere, they would sit on the ground. I'll go to the WhatsApp line now and start going through some of the questions that you have already sent in. And Dr. Chris, Catherine wants to know whether dogs get headaches. Well, we don't know, but you have to ask, therefore, what is a headache? And headaches occur for a range of reasons. The most common kind of human headache is what's called a tension headache. And this is where as the name suggests, people tend to be a bit stressed, a bit worked up. They may not have eaten enough. They may not have drunk enough. And you tend to get this tight band-like pain across the top of your head. And as a result of that, you, you're then forced to then retreat from the sunshine and usually get cool, get a drink, get some food and you feel better. Well, dogs don't get stressed in the same way that we we do, but they do occasionally get stressed because of environmental issues. So they might they might be stressed enough for that to happen. They might be deprived of food and water, and that might therefore contribute. So given that their bodies work the same way ours do and their their biochemistry works very similar to ours, it's possible that they could they could succumb to that sort of headache. We also get pain in our heads when we get infections, and the most common cause of an infection is a meningitis, which is caused by viruses. It's called an aseptic meningitis, and this is where the viruses that, that go in, they're called enteroviruses, they go in through the mouth, in, in the, either from the air or in something we eat and drink, and they go from the intestine up to the nervous system, and they irritate the the membranes called the meninges around the brain and that irritation is painful and this is a common cause of us getting headaches pain behind the eyes feeling a bit run down and enteroviruses are very very common for many many species and dogs could potentially catch them so i think it's reasonable dogs could catch enterovirus infection and have an aseptic meningitis for that reason as well absolutely another reason we get meningitis is because of bacterial infections we get bacterial meningitis which is life-threatening and this is where bacteria invade from the outside either through the skin through the respiratory tract the nose and throat most commonly and then via the bloodstream up into the brain and again inside those meninges lining around the brain and if that can happen to us it could happen to animals much more rarely because their immune systems are very very powerful much better than ours at stopping this happening but 
it's, it's not impossible and that could cause them to have a headache and then there's a range of other reasons why they might get a headache if, if a dog breaks into your liquor uh, store and and drinks your beer it could get a hangover just like we do for exactly the same reason so i suppose it's possible and i know people that have had drunk dogs because they've done that uh, my dog doesn't like beer i offered him some the other day doesn't like beer but <laughs> Um, the, the, so there is a, I think the answer to the question is they could get headaches, but of course we can't yeah. ask them. And so thinking about it rationally, I think they probably could. They probably do when they get ill because they'll catch all the same things that we can in similar sorts of ways. But can we ask them? No, they just look a bit miserable. So we have to infer that they might have a headache by looking at them. If they look a bit miserable, they haven't taken care of themselves in the same way. They're not so fit and active as they want to be and they've got a runny nose. Chances are they might well have a dog cold and have, have a headache to go with. Mine's developed an unhealthy appetite for chocolate and stole some of the Easter eggs. So oh, I no. hope that That's very bad. That's very bad because dogs can't metabolize certain components of the chocolate, which in us, it's fine. We have liver processes that will deal with it. But in dogs, they're devoid of the particular metabolic pathway that breaks down certain constituents of chocolate. And it can be lethal. One small chocolate bar for some dogs can be a lethal dose. You have to be really careful. Yeah, I have heard that. I was quite worried, but he didn't show any signs of being sick afterwards. Um, Chris, just going back to the DNA conversation that you had with, with Ian in Bloberg, and there's another question from a listener kind of in line with that saying, I had a baby by donor egg. I've heard that my DNA may still have passed to my child. Is that true? When people donate eggs, what they're very kindly and generously doing is making their egg that they could have a baby from available to a person to fertilize with an external another source of sperm so you effectively do in vitro fertilization ivf and the sperm are mixed with the egg and the sperm fertilizes the egg and then you end up with a child which is the dna of the donor and that includes both the mitochondrial dna and the genetic, the genomic DNA, plus the genomic DNA that was in the sperm. We used to think that sperm gave lots of mitochondria to the egg when it fertilised, but we're now not so sure that that's the case. So we think most of the mitochondrial DNA, if not all the mitochondrial DNA in an egg, is going to come from the egg, not from the sperm. So a baby that's born via IVF using a donor egg will be half genetically the donor of that egg and half the person who provided the sperm that fertilized the egg. Fascinating. Uh, Doc, we've got four minutes together left. I think we've got time for a quick call from Elizabeth in Deep River. Elizabeth, good morning. What's your question for Dr. Chris Smith? My question is, um, how do dogs understand days of the week? Because my guide dog understands days of the week. <laughs> do you mean the words, Elizabeth, or do you mean as in it's got a, a natural sense of time and it knows on Mondays yes. we go out at a certain time? Yeah, she, she, he knows not to nag me on Fridays because, for example, I like to listen to you. So he's not going to nag choice. me. Good choice. It's a very well-trained dog, isn't it? Very intuitive. Dogs have an amazing sense of patterning and timing, and they learn very well how life processes and and how it progresses and because they they have this strong sense of timing they know when they get fed they know when they go to bed they know when you come in when you go out they know when you're going to feed them they know when they're going to get a walk and they learn these things and so they they are very good at remembering and they are habitual and so they do quite quickly pick up on what happens when and they learn those rhythms and they they rely on many cues. They have very good hearing, very good smell and they're intuitive. 
and they also pick up on other cues and giveaways that you, that you present. So they learn quite quickly that when you do X, that means Y is going to happen. And so I think that they're, they're doing a lot of pattern recognition, and it's not necessarily that they know today is Wednesday and therefore we do this. There will be other cues and giveaways in your behaviour, other things that tend to happen on Wednesdays, and they learn that when you do this, the following is going to happen, and they like that, so they therefore prepare and behave accordingly. Mm, love that. Dr. Chris, a listener says on the line, what do you think would happen if all residents in a medium-sized town watered their lawn at about the same time of day on a relatively warm day? Would there be any greater chance of rain? Well, to an extent, you would be putting a lot more water into the atmosphere because if you've got a warm day, you put water on a warm ground, you're giving energy to the water, and this means some of that water, if not a, pro a high proportion, will evaporate. Therefore, you're going to raise the humidity. That humid air is going to rise up in the air until it condenses as clouds. But the downside is that it won't necessarily rain over you. It will rain downwind because all that water and moisture has got to rise up through the air column get together to make the water droplets nice crystals and form the clouds and it's going to have blown away by the time that's all happened and it'll be someone else's rainfall so you're generously donating your water as a township to someone else's rainfall <laughs> quota and watering their garden for them isn't that generous of everybody so or maybe not the best way to bring about rain <laughs> no no not the best way to make it rain dr chris smith as always thank you so much for sharing your incredible wisdom with us have a beautiful weekend thanks amy have a good weekend everyone Bye bye